Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 34 and 35. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Genesis chapter 34 and 35. Seems that a few years have passed since last week's lesson when Jacob came back from his uncle Laban's place and encountered his brother Esau. After meeting Esau, he moved to a town called Shechem where he settled in. So he started up in Haran, which is the white arrow at the very top, and he came down and then he landed in Shechem there at the lower arrow. One little point of clarification, the town was called Shechem. The chief in the town was Hamar. He had a son whom he named Shechem. So the town and the person have the same name just to keep you on your toes. I'm not sure whether the town was named after the boy or the boy was named after the town, but in any event. And you'll notice that if you look closely, there is not far from Shechem is Bethel. So as a comparison between how far he journeyed from Haran to uh, Shechem was 550 miles. Later on, he moves from Shechem to Bethel, not so far, about 30 miles. We'll have the map up again later, but we won't show Haran, so I just wanted to point that out. Anyway, Jacob's children have grown enough while living in the town of Shechem to find themselves in some rather adult situations that are going to cause you know, trouble for all of Jacob and his whole family. You know, as you found out, this week's lesson starts right off with a difficult passage about how Jacob and Leah's daughter was assaulted by a local villager, and her brothers then exacted a very bad revenge. It's not a passage we hear on Sundays. It does beg the question, why is this in the Bible? Are these people really part of the vaunted patriarchs of the Jewish nation through which God was revealing himself? Sharon touched on this a bit in our last lesson when she pointed out that God didn't have anything better to work with. <laughs> Unfortunately, since Adam and Eve in the beginning, our fallen human nature has failed God in all sorts of ways. We've been reading about how there were a lot of schemers and shysters among the patriarchs. And this week, we read about a few that had anger problems. But as we read about these guys, we have to remember that God isn't done with them yet. He, constant, he is constantly working on them, trying to show them a better way. And by recording it in the Bible, that will be handed down to us this very day, he is showing us a better way as well. I had a boss one time who used to say that all employees can serve a purpose, no matter how poor their performance may be. He said they can always be used as bad examples. <laughs> and maybe that's what we have going on with these guys. But really, we can't look at just one episode, one chapter of Genesis as standing all by itself. It all fits together like a big puzzle. Last week, we really saw how Jacob, the supplanter, really came around. And he regretted what he had done to his brother Esau when he swindled him out of his blessing. 
It was a story of redemption and trying to turn his life around when he gave so many gifts to Esau, so many of the blessings that he'd been given through his life in atonement for taking that father's blessing from him. And what about that story of Abraham and how he was going to sacrifice his son on an altar at God's request? Read by itself, that story doesn't make any sense and it borders on being pathological. But when, when read in the context of obedience to God in all things and how God richly blessed Abraham for his unsurpassed faithfulness in him, it makes much more sense. But that story finds its fulfillment and ultimate meaning in the New Testament we know and how it was a foreshadowing of God sending his only son to the world knowing that he would be sacrificed on the altar of the cross. By itself, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his only son is kind of ridiculous. But in the context of God's son on the cross, it takes on new meaning. But even the crucifixion doesn't make much sense if, we, if read in isolation. The God of the universe, killed by those he created, by those he favored, the Israelites. How could that make any sense when heard in isolation? It can't. It can only be understood in the light of the resurrection and all that Jesus said and did in the world. It all goes together. That's why we take the time to read the Bible in its entirety, the entire word, not just isolated parts. If we wanted to read a novel like Chronicles of Narnia or something, we wouldn't just open it up and start reading randomly in various chapters. We would never understand what was going on. We'd never learn a thing. Obviously, the same is true about the Bible. It definitely is difficult to read some of these passages. I ask myself, now what's going on? What are these guys thinking? But it all forms a part of the whole and it wouldn't be complete without it. So be faithful and hang in there when you read these passages. God will richly reward your efforts. Now, I don't know that our stories from the chapters today are ever going to reach the meaning of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, but the point is to be patient when reading the Bible. Try to find the hidden meaning somewhere and how different parts relate to each other. Our reading from for today gets right to the point at the beginning of the chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humbled her. A difficult passage. A lot of questions are raised here that we don't have an answer for. How old was Dinah? It's not indicated. We can only speculate, probably a teenager of some kind, about. What was she doing out visiting the women of the land without protection from her family? Apparently, they've been living there for, what, 10, 12 years, 15 years? Enough trust had been built up with the community they lived in to allow this to happen. Maybe it was through that time of building trust that Shechem had come to know Dinah and was attracted to her. It's not the first time we hear about a young maiden out by herself. Remember Rebecca, 
that in Genesis 24, there was this instance of her out by herself. Rebecca, of course, was, became the wife of Isaac. She was fair to look upon, a virgin. And so I, Abraham's servant asked her for some water, and she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. So here she is interacting with a total stranger. When she had finished giving him a drink, she then drew water for all his camels. It doesn't say that she was alone, but it doesn't mention anyone else around. And apparently the servant hadn't asked anyone, hadn't talked to anyone else before this. I would think he would, if there were other women there, he would say similar conversations with them. But he didn't, so we assumed that she was alone. And then Rebecca leads him to her father's house, apparently without another escort. Now this is a minor point. But I don't think there's enough evidence to say that this event with Dinah could have been avoided if only the family had done a better job of protecting her. Evil men find their way around the best efforts of others. It's a sad fact. And when it says he seized her and lay with her and humbled her, that's pretty dramatic. There's no doubt this was a terrible event. Jacob, as father and a good man, obviously must have been deeply distressed but he couldn't do much. And in the case of a family by different wives in that culture, and here's a little chart showing the, the wives and children of Jacob. In that culture, it was not the father, but the full brothers on whom the protection of the daughters got shifted to. They are the guardians of a sister's welfare and the avengers of her wrongs. So it was for this reason that, that Simeon and Levi, two of the brothers of Dinah by Leah, appear to be the chief actors in this episode. It, apparently Shechem hadn't checked with his chart to see how many brothers Dinah had before he did this. <laughs> this wasn't a good idea in any event. It almost seems like Jacob and Hamor, the two fathers, could have worked something out here but the brothers show up and their anger overtakes them. It may, not, it may have gone better for Hamor and Shechem if they had expressed even a little bit of regret and apologies and if they had brought Dinah with them to return her to her family, but it doesn't sound like that was part of the discussion. And the culture of the time, there's a lot of dynamics we can't know about. Without those elements though, the brothers, the true sons of Jacob, the supplanter, begin their own scheme of revenge. As negotiations go, Hamor and Shechem are going easy on Jacob, you might say. They quickly revealed their hand when they said they would pay anything to get Jacob's family to agree to letting Dinah marry Shechem. It seems a sign they were sincere in wanting this marriage to come about, and they agreed to anything at all. They didn't think about what consequences could follow. They trusted the brothers. But the brothers see an opening, and they used their family faith life and their sign of, circum uh, of the covenant as a way to seek their revenge. Not only must Shechem be circumcised, but every male in the town has to be circumcised. Hamor and Shechem seem more than willing to agree. Of course, then they have to convince the rest of the town. Let's think about that for a minute. How big of a deal was it to ask every male to get circumcised? Well, I'm thinking it's a big deal. It was extraordinarily painful to endure at that time. Even these days, 
it's a big deal for an adult male to get circumcised. But it's not uncommon, apparently, because hospitals have information about it on their websites. None of you went to the website looking about that? <laughs> so this procedure is done under full anesthesia, so the patient is obviously asleep when this is done. And as with any surgery, to ensure a quick recovery, there are certain things a patient should do. There's seven items. Three of these items, they keep the incision dry, which is normal. Avoid sexual activity for at least a month, not surprising. Avoid strenuous exercise for the first month after surgery and take simple pain medicine as needed for discomfort. This all sounds not too bad these days, but note number five, avoid strenuous exercise for the first month after surgery. I suspect a violent sword fight three days after surgery could cause some problems. <laughs> About 30 years ago, when my wife and I were started having children, I had a surprising conversation with a coworker, a guy who also had a family starting up and beginning to grow. In the course of the conversation one day, he told me that I should be sure to have my newborn son circumcised. He was like really adamant about this. And so I asked him what made him so passionate about such a thing. It, you know, it was kind of uncommon. He then told me that he had been circumcised when he was 19 years old. Thankfully, he didn't go into any details about it, but he relayed <laughs> that it was one of the worst experiences he ever had. Thinking back, I'm guessing that surgery took place sometime in the 1960s or something. So clearly it was done in a hospital with anesthesia, sterile conditions, a well-trained staff, taking care of whatever complications could come up, all of that stuff. But even with all that, this guy called it one of the most extraordinarily bad events in his life. How would it have been in the time of Jacob and his sons? I can't imagine. He more in Shechem, have to convince the rest of the town to undergo this surgery so that Shechem can marry Jacob's daughter. Either the men of the town have no idea about what this would mean, recovery-wise, <laughs> or else something else is going on here. They must have really loved and cared for Shechem and Hamor. Or maybe Hamor was a tyrant in the town who had command over anything that went on. Maybe they feared his retribution more than they feared the circumcision. We just don't know. But also, Hamar was buttering them up by telling them how rich they would become if the town folk would intermingle and intermarry with Jacob's family, for it was becoming, it was obvious to everybody that his family was doing very well and seemed to prosper more than they were prospering. They could share in that prosperity if they all agreed to this one little request. And for whatever reason, they did agree, and they all underwent the procedure. So on the third day, when the pain is the worst, here comes Simeon and Levi, and the rest is history. In the Bible, the third day tends to be a good day. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Jonah escaped from the whale on the third day. But for these guys, the third day, more of a bad day. I suspect that when Simeon and Levi walked through the town that day, they probably heard moaning and groaning coming from every household, and they killed all the males. 
It must not have been much of a fight. Even though it was only the two brothers, apparently, that did the killing, it sounds like several others of the brothers participated in the plundering that followed. Jacob's response here is much stronger than what he had to say about Dinah's attack. But of course, it's a much worse event. Jacob recognizes that his sons had put the entire family at risk and destroyed, of course, any relation they might have built up to that point. What town or village is ever going to let them come by and, and uh, make it part of their home? A very bad situation with Dinah was made several times worse. Now, the brothers had said, should Shechem treat our sister as a harlot? And of course, they knew that was wrong. But that was apparently exactly what they were going to do with all the women that they took captive after they killed all the men of the town. It was a bad situation. What should have been the response? What is a proper response for Dinah's assault? Sadly, that's a question that's still debated up to today. But if we look at 400 years after Jacob, around the time of Moses, we know that the Israelites spent 400 years in captivity, so, and it was Jacob's son coming up here that took them to Egypt. So somewhere around 400, 450 years later, Moses was uh, writing the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 22, we read, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not put her away all his days. That doesn't undo the crime of an assault. It doesn't undo the hurt and the harm done to the woman. But this directive doesn't allow the situation, a bad situation, to get out of hand and grow to a far worse situation. Deuteronomy has punishments for a lot of different situations listed in it. It all seems pretty arcane when you read through it, when taking it in isolation. But it served a purpose then to help control the responses that people had to whatever wrong they suffered at the hands of somebody else. It covers all kinds of, well, it covers all kinds of crazy subjects. Here's another example. When you build a new house, you should make a parapet around for your roof, you know, a fence around the outside edge, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if one fall from it. Who would think the Bible would have instructions on how to build your house in it? <laughs> and why is it there? Well, laws are only written even today if somebody does something really wrong and trying to avoid it from happening again. So somebody must have fallen off somebody's roof. So, hey, let's make a law that says to put protection around it. Here's another passage that's more famous from the Mosaic Law in Exodus chapter 21. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When we read this, when we read this eye for an eye passage, it seems kind of cruel seems revengeful. But considering the situation with Dinah, it shows that it is asking for considerable restraint from those seeking justice for a wrong committed. We're not to take rampant revenge way beyond what the original crime has been. 
To reinforce that, Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine and recompense. We have to leave it to God. Of course, Jesus himself addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. In those ancient days of Jacob, there was no law of Moses. There wasn't much law at all. Might made right. So Jacob's sons let their anger get the best of them, and they did a great evil. Moses addressed that and tried to make the retribution fit the crime. If you cause someone else to lose an eye, then you don't lose your life because of it. You just lose an eye. In the case of assaulting a woman, the response was to pay the father and care for the woman the rest of your life, the rest of her life. So those were steps in the right direction toward building a just society and coming to know God's will for mankind. Then Jesus came along to perfect that, to understand that understanding of God's will and tells us not to resist evil, take no revenge. Those are very challenging words. How do we do that? There was an example of someone trying to live that out recently who spoke at the Nebraska Walk for Life pro-life rally down in Lincoln a couple of weeks ago. Her name was Jennifer Christie. She herself was the victim of a rape and became pregnant from it. The flyer for her states, against the advice of doctors, friends, and society, she decided to keep her child. Her story reminds us that God brings healing from pain, and children are part of the journey to recovery, not an obstacle for mothers to overcome. I am not raising a rapist's baby, Jennifer said. I am raising my baby. He is the love that I pour into him. He is the love that of my husband who is raising him, siblings who play with him, and grandparents who dote on him. He is all of these things and more. Is he a reminder? Yes, he is a reminder that women can be stronger than their circumstances. He's also a reminder that beauty can come from darkness. In the Old Testament, the Bible has several stories of what people can become and what kind of horrible things they can do if they don't know God in their lives. The Daily News has several stories of that as well every day. In the New Testament, though, the revelation of God's Son in the world, the Bible shows us what is possible if we do have God in our lives. And it's wonderful to see when some people, such as Jennifer Christie, have the strength and courage to live that out, even in today's culture. We should pray that we have such strength and courage in this culture also. Chapter 35 of our lesson starts off with God telling Jacob it was time to move on. It was time to leave the area he had apparently been in for a few years. It doesn't say how long they were there, but it was time enough for the children to grow up to experience the things we just talked about. It wasn't really a very long journey to Haran. 
like the trip from Haran was a long journey. This was only about 30 miles from the town of Shechem at the upper arrow to Bethel, the lower arrow. It wasn't far, but it was enough to put some distance between themselves and people who might remember what they had done. Why did God ask him to move? Maybe it was to mitigate the possible retribution from the tribes and towns of that area. Or maybe it was to take him back to where God had appeared to Jacob when he left his mother and father and his rage-filled brother on the way to Uncle Laban's house in Haran. Back in Genesis 28, this was where God had appeared to Jacob in a dream and had showed to him the ladder or steps to heaven with angels ascending and descending upon them. He promised Jacob prosperity and protection. After he had seen that vision, Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou givest me, I give at the tenth to thee. Even though God had kept his promise, he made, he had the promises he had made to Jacob back then, we haven't really heard much about how Jacob had kept his promise. God was bringing him back to give him that opportunity. Jacob responded quickly and told those who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. These are good things to remember when we go to worship God. We need to make sure we live good lives and are worshiping only the one true God and not the other distractions of our culture. We need to purify ourselves by going to confession as needed to ensure our sins are wiped away, our soul is clean. And we need to remember in whose presence we are standing when we are worshiping God at Mass. This reminds me of some of baptism as well, when the new child is purified through baptism of original sin. And if an older person, an adult, purified of their, all their sins, they always are given a white garment to signify that, to change their garments. And it is no accident that before Mass, pre, or for Mass, priests and deacons and acolytes at Mass are dressed in a special way. EMHCs and lectors, although not in special robes or albs, should also keep in mind what they wear when doing these ministries. We do these things because it is the right thing to do when leading our communities in worship to God, worship of our Creator. But we should know that we are carrying on a tradition that goes, that's been a part of worship since the time of Jacob, way back then. That was part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 34 and 35, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.